0: Welcome to episode 15 of The Baby Monitor. Before we start, we need to give you a warning. Up until this point, The Baby Monitor has been pretty PG-13. It's creepy sometimes. Sometimes somebody drops an F-bomb. But that's as far as it's gone. This episode is not like that. It features graphic descriptions of assault and murder. If you don't want to listen, turn off this episode and before we begin episode 16 we'll recap the uh, events of episode 15 so you know what's going on if you do want to listen brace yourself this is the baby monitor Act Three, Episode Fifteen. There's nothing to say. They pick the largest shards up with their bare fingers, vacuum everything else. Now they lay in the same bed, but they can't be farther apart. Richard Platt is awake, lying on his back, one arm folded across his chest, the other propped behind his head. To him, it seems his and Lissa's bodies are the walls of a canyon. And Asher is a tiny raft floating between them. Richard stays still as the rock, thinking about erosion, thinking about wounds in the earth, the way people float in and out of each other's lives, the horrible impacts they make, the scars they leave behind, and as if to place a period on his thoughts, to punctuate them for him, to agree, his so silent home makes a sound. It is a small bump, but thick and distinct, coming from a very specific place almost directly over Richard's bed. Richard tilts his head like a puzzled puppy. Beyond that dark air, there's thin plaster ceiling decorated with spackles and white paint, then insulation, and then the attic. He was up there only once, back when they'd done the inspection. He has never been at it again. Lissa was pregnant when they'd moved in. And she's never stuck her head into the attic at all. Why would she? The furnace is in the basement. The attic was insulated with blown in, making it impossible to breathe. And there is not even a light bulb up there. But still, there was a bump. Richard floats to standing, steadies himself like a surfer, and understands all at once the true nature of his home. He turns to face the bed reaches down and grabs Asher by the shoulders, and his animal growl comes low and strong, but panic wavers underneath every word. You need to run. And Asher opens his eyes, and sees buried things surfacing on his father's face. Pools of guilt, caverns of fear. Asher's night terrors, the night the night itself. Now they are all given shape, and so he screams and screams waving baby arms to ward off the things meant to keep him safe. Sleep. Bed. Home. Father. Lissa slides off the mattress bent double, backs away in horror, backs up to the wall. Her mouth opens and closes and says, Richard, she is met with a pointed finger and a clenched fist and the order, the warning, run. Still, she does not move. Lissa covers her stomach with one forearm and spreads the fingers of her other hand across her cheek as if she's been punched and is trying to shield herself, but she does not move, and so Richard grabs the sheets and rips them away, exposing their son to the night and everything in it. He looks at Lyssa and points at the baby and says again the one word, run. She darts forward and scoops their baby into her arms and backs away, and then Lyssa Platt runs light steps barely touching the stairs. He hears her lift her keys from the island and then turn and yell, Richard, I'm going to the hospital. And plead, Richard, are you coming? Come with us, Richard. But Richard does not answer. And finally, she makes the decision he knows inside she will. The garage door opens. The Camry starts. His family is gone. Richard is quiet now, and so is his home. He pulls on his jeans and boots and takes a pocket flashlight from his bedside table and then crosses the room with the determination of a monk. He lifts the hammer from where it rests on the dresser and walks into his son's room where the door, the only door, to the attic waits above the crib, a four-foot-by-four-foot inset in the ceiling. He hooks the hammer over the side of the crib by its claw, stands on a chair and reaches up, up, to slide the trapdoor aside, and then leaps, catching his fingers on the two-by-sixes, using that momentum to propel himself into the attic. He perches on the side, his feet dangling in the space beneath, waiting for his eyes to adjust to the darkness, letting his skin adapt to the dry, cool air. After a moment, he clicks on the flashlight, and shines it first in a fast arc, and then more methodically, and everything he sees he has to stare at a long time before he understands it, can accept it for what it is. Along one wall, the blown end has been scooped aside to make room for a blanket. Clothes, his clothes, his missing sweatshirt, have been draped casually over rafters. In a far corner, there's a neat little pile of trash wrappers and tins and milk jugs. There is a room here, a cave, hollowed out of the high rafters of the platte's quietest dreams, and someone was burrowing in, making this dark space a little larger every day. Richard grabs the beam and lowers himself back down into the nursery to think. He sees Churchill sitting in the crib and goes to touch the stuffed animal, and it is only now that he can feel himself being watched. His neck snaps to the ceiling, and up there, there's a face framed in the attic door, a face covered in a horrible rubber gas mask, big bug eyes staring down where Richard stands, next to his son's crib. Richard plants one foot on the chair and leaps like campfires leap into the night, swipes at the face, but it is gone, and his hands pass through black air to land, scrabbling on the two-by-six, searching for purchased splinters digging into the skin. Richard looks up just in time to see a boot appear beside his fingers, and then a knife, white bone handle, blade-burned black mat. The man in the gas mask holds the knife out into the light for a moment, letting Richard look at it, puzzle at its meaning, before he runs it across the back of Richard's hand. Richard feels his skin part and his blood rush and then drip, splashing a river down his wrist, falling onto the carpet. But instead of dropping, Richard rises, pulling up and then reaching his red, wet hand out to grab the boot. It tugs away, but Richard hears a stumbling and a bang from above. The man has smacked his head against a rafter. Richard pulls himself into the attic and hauls himself to his feet, and now the two men stand face to face, balancing cautiously on the wooden beams. The light floods around their ankles, curling into the air, drifting up among wafting particles of fiberglass and dust. Richard slides a foot forward, careful, careful, knowing a slip off the beam and into the insulation might send him tearing through the ceiling, onto the second floor. Richard breathes in, and can feel fiberglass eat at his neck and his lungs. You tortured him, he says. You tortured my son. The words come out almost as questions, as if he can't believe the depth of what he is learning As if this man, this form, this shape might rip off the gas mask and tell him, No, nothing like that. You have it all wrong. You stayed here. With us. Richard cannot see behind that mask, and he needs to see. He takes another step, and the form steps back. Richard takes one more step, just misses the beam, and he wobbles. And now the form is on top of him, pushing him by the shoulders. Richard cannot step into the insulation. And so he must let himself fall flat, and as he does, he feels a rib squeeze and crack as he splats across the beams. Fingers of fiberglass reach up to make tiny cuts in his face, in his forearm, in his eyes, and he can sense the form coming for him, so he kicks out blind, both feet flailing in the air. He feels the toe of one boot catch and pulls hard. The man in the gas mask stumbles, hands windmilling wide to catch him, but it is too late. He has fallen across the trap door and now his body is outlined by the light curling up from the nursery into the darkness, and Richard heaves himself at that light, covers the man's body with his, pinning him against the trap door. As the man's hands scramble for purchase, Richard drives both elbows into his lower back, shoves, trying to stuff him through that 4x4 entrance. He lifts and pushes, lifts and pushes, bouncing with all his weight until the man's spine snaps, and he folds in half and falls into the nursery Richard lowers himself through the trapdoor, his world spinning his eyes tearing from the stinging of the fiberglass and the dust he spreads his feet wide apart on the carpet reaches down and strips away the gas mask to look into the eyes of a man he knows but has never met you lived with us he whispers still assembling the awfulness of everything in our home The man on the carpet coughs blood. Suddenly Richard's stomach seizes, and he cannot look at this man any longer. So he steps away, walks in a circle around the nursery, comes back, and when he does, his eyes are so full of tears he cannot see anyhow. The blood is still flowing from the knife cut on his hand, dripping down onto the carpet. He makes a wet fish, shakes it, says, What was I supposed to do? What good could I have done? He walks another circle around the nursery, trying to find his breath. He pounds his chest, stamping red across his shirt. My son, my son needs a father. Is this a joke? Because the man on the carpet starts laughing. He laughs and laughs so hard, tiny droplets of blood spew into the air, a thin fountain decorating his lips and his cheeks. A father needs a son, he says, like it is a punchline, and the world will roar with him. Richard says, no, you are not going to put this on me. You were playing in the road. That's on you, not me. That's on you. But the man on the floor coughs again. I went to his grave every day. Until I saw you. Richard crumples to his knees, reaches out, takes the man's hand in his, clutches it to his chest. Asher, he begs, that's my son's name. Asher had just been born. I drove away, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, but I did it for him, so he could have a father. The man's back may be broken, but his eyes are bright and hungry. Not for long, he says, and again he starts to laugh. Richard doesn't understand. He pulls back his hand, leans his face spare inches from the man's, and says, You're going to jail. And the man answers, So are you. Richard's eyes leave the man and see into the future. His mouth falls open. His head shakes back and forth. He pushes the man's hand away, stands, claws at the area for balance, stumbles back, back, and that's where he finds the crib and the hammer hooked on it. Richard reaches out, and his arm is just long enough. He falls back down to his knees and runs one palm over the man's head, clearing away the drops of blood, the sweat, the hair. I'm sorry, he says. And then he raises the hammer up and the man's eyes fly wide, but Richard is already bringing it down onto his skull. It bounces off the first time, leaves a dent behind, a rapid whitening of the forehead. Now Richard puts one hand on the man's neck, because he's trying to squirm away, his fingers clawing at the carpet, his legs trailing uselessly behind. Richard brings the hammer higher, and swings it harder, feels something cave, and then again, and this time the skin tears. And when Richard pulls at the hammer, he has to yank and twist, and that's when it finally cracks free. Red blood, and white bone, and yellow syrup rise with it in an arc. A wet rainbow that splatter-paints the wallpaper, and the carpet, and the crib, and Churchill the bulldog, too. Richard swings again, and he's not sure how many times he has to hit the man to make sure he's dead. So he just keeps going. There are just two episodes left in The Baby Monitor, a podcast of family horrors, and just a few more revelations to go. But in the meantime, we have some big news. The novella, The Baby Monitor, the novella of family horrors, is live on Amazon now. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do one of a few things. You can go rate the podcast wherever you're listening to it, on iTunes or on Stitcher, or you can go to Amazon and purchase the novella if you've got a Kindle, it's just 99 cents for the next month. It would let us produce more podcasts like this one. Thanks for your support, and we're hoping you're enjoying The Baby Monitor, a podcast of family horrors.